So I think uh, you'll all agree that uh, we've had an incredible group of speakers throughout the conference um, who've shared their views on how we might best respond to a changing climate by increasing the resilience of our agroecosystems. This is such an important uh, topic for the community, and it's been wonderful to see everybody engaging in this way on this, uh, on this set of issues uh, that has been the focus of our discussion. Um, and it's critical for the Doughty Water for Food Institute to focus on these challenges and to find potential solutions uh, that can be of the most good for the most people with the resources that we have available to us. Um, and that's really what we wanted to discuss with our panel today. This, this session gives us an opportunity to hear from our panelists and to hear from everybody in the room um, and have a, a begin an ongoing engagement and a dialogue with, with all of you uh, on the future of water uh, for food. Um, so let's begin with the, uh, having the views of our four panelists um, who've all been involved in these issues for many, many years um, and who are also involved in the programs of the Water for Food Institute uh, in one way or another. Um, so we'll have a, a set of questions with our panelists, um, and then I want to open it up for discussion uh, from the audience. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we had a fifth panelist, um, and that was Don Wilhite. Um, Don Wilhite, until recently, was the director of the School for Natural Resources, um, but unfortunately, he's, he's ill and wasn't able to join us today, and, and it's a real pity because he was really instrumental in organizing the climate-related portions of this conference. Um, so, and I do want to thank Don for all he did uh, to make this conference a success. Um, so the first panelists that we have, uh, we're going strictly in alphabetical order, uh, with apologies to Sandy. Um, it's, uh, we start with Mace. Mace Hack is the state director for the Nature Conservancy and has worked uh, on uh, wildlife conservation projects in the U.S. and internationally, including extensive work on grasslands uh, in East Africa. Currently, he leads a statewide staff of 22 people in conserving land and water for wildlife and people in Nebraska, ensuring the state's natural heritage remains healthy for future generations. He's also an adjunct professor here in the University of Nebraska Lincoln School of Natural Resources, um, and before this, Mace was assistant administrator for the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission's Wildlife Division, where he and his team were responsible for research and population monitoring of game and non-game wildlife, including endangered species. The next speaker is uh, Dilip Kulkarni, um, and uh, Dilip is president of the Agri-Food Division of Jain Irrigation Systems in India, uh, Jain Irrigation Systems is, uh, is, a, is a huge uh, organization, a huge company working in more than 100 countries around the world. Um, a very close uh, partner of ours, we signed an agreement last year um, and several of us visited the Jain headquarters uh, in Jalgaon. So it's a, it's a wonderful partner and we're so pleased that uh, Didip Kulkarni could be with us. Uh, Dilip develops and implements new programs in agriculture and food processing and oversees building value chain operations with small and medium-sized farmers. He also participates in Jane Irrigation's research and development operations 
He develops linkages with other organizations, including public-private partnership programs on national and international levels, and he coordinates the company's activities for strategic policy developments. He's an expert on technology transfer and extension for farmers and entrepreneurs, and he participates in various committees working on agriculture and food technology issues. The third person uh, is someone that I'm sure everybody who has been in here in previous conferences knows well, um, and it's Prem Paul, who is the Vice Chancellor for Research and Economic Development at UNL, and one of the guiding forces for both the Water for Food Institute and the conference from their inception until today. His energy, enthusiasm, and unwavering support for the Institute has been critically important to its success. Uh, in past years, he has um, both led the overall uh, conference, the first four conferences uh, in this series, um, and he's also been the moderator for this closing panel. So as you can imagine, I have some very big shoes to fill. Um, those of you who were here uh, at the closing uh, panel last year may remember that Prem gave me a hammer, and I brought it with me today. Uh, and I keep it very close to my desk as a reminder uh, of the big uh, responsibility that I have, and I'm very grateful to you for this hammer, uh, Prem. Uh, and last but not least uh, is Sandy Zelma, uh, and Sandy is a Robert B. Dougherty Professor at the College of Law here at the University of Nebraska. She has published numerous articles and commentary on water use and conservation, on environmental law, and on related topics, as well as authored or co-authored several books. She's a member scholar of the Center for Progressive Reform, She's a member of the Resilience Alliance and a trustee of the Rocky Mountains Mineral Law Foundation. Sandy also recently served on the National Academy of Sciences National Research Council Committee on Missouri River Recovery and Associated Sediment Management Issues. She is vice chair of the Public Lands and Water Resources Committee, uh, Committees of the American Bar Association, its section on environment, energy, and resources, and previously chaired the Marine Resources Committee. So we have a wonderful panel, um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be great to uh, get their views. And let me then just start out um, with asking uh, just one uh, question, which was, what was, and I'm going to start with Sandy and then come this way, if that's OK. Um, and I'd like to ask Sandy, what was the most uh, important, the most interesting message for you uh, that you'll be taking away from the conference that you'd like to share with, with everyone here. Well, thank you, Roberto, for that wonderful introduction and for um, putting this panel together. I always find the closing panels at the end of a long conference are often the most helpful in terms of trying to um, synthesize the things that we heard and the things that we learned. In terms of the most interesting message of the conference, for me, there were a lot of them, but I'll try and boil it down to um, one main theme. Um, it's kind of got two parts to it, and both of them have their footing in the resilience panel that I uh, attended yesterday afternoon. And one quote really struck me. Lene Gordon said, water isn't just a commodity, it's the bloodstream of the biosphere. I think we've all heard water characterized as many, many different things from you know, Mark Twain's famous 
uh, whiskey is for drinking, water is for fighting, to Ben Franklin's, we'll all know the wealth of the worth of water when the well runs dry, but I really liked this, it captured my imagination. Water isn't just a commodity, though it can be marketed, but it's more than that. It's the bloodstream of the biosphere. But in that, and this is the second part of the message that I took away from the resilience panel, and Doug Beard, I think, really made the case very powerfully that we have to identify, acknowledge, and make informed choices about trade-offs in the use of water. Um, his example was 10 million kilocalories of wild fish as the equivalent of 21.1 million tons of corn. And in some areas of the world, like the Mekong, raising corn takes 17% more water than it takes to support and sustain fish, uh, fisheries, wild fisheries. I googled this, actually, to make sure I'd gotten it down correctly in my notes. And instead of really getting confirmation of that figure, although I have no doubt that Doug Beard uh, has his facts and figures correct because he is the US Geological Survey after all, um, I found a whole lot of recipes for fish tacos using corn tortillas. It made me really very hungry. Talk about trade-offs, I guess. Um, another set of trade-offs, and this is the last point I'll make on this particular um, interesting theme or message that I got from the conference and from this panel is that um, a few of the speakers, and we've all heard this and thought about it, I imagine, uh, argued that storage capacity, more storage capacity, is needed to provide water to feed the world. But as Doug Beard pointed out, dams impact the quantity and the quality or types of food fish trade-offs. Again, they can also displace people in some instances, and they have other significant trade-offs as well. Now, Craig Allen in the same panel noted that the amount of water in storage has quadrupled since 1960, so we have been building dams uh, apace. But meanwhile, up to 30% of our vertebrate species have been threatened with extinction. So again, trade-offs, and it should come as no surprise to any of us here in the room that policymakers need to have and appreciate the full picture with respect to all of these uh, implications of proposed actions regarding man water management um, for agriculture and for other purposes. Um, laws, U.S. laws and laws around the world like uh, NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, or in other countries it's an environmental impact assessment requirement for major federal actions or for major state actions, can really help in requiring disclosure of environmental impacts of a proposed action along with the alternatives of that proposed action, helping give decision makers a better grip on not only the science and the scientific implications, but the ultimate trade-offs for society in making a decision. Well, thanks so much, Sandy. Um, and I <clears throat> particularly like what you said about trade-offs, because I do think that this conference, perhaps and more than many others, really brought that out in so many issues in so, so many different ways. And I was struck today in the um, in the discussion on livestock, it was, I'm sure it was an eye-opener for so many. It really brought out those issues, uh, both corrected misperceptions, but also raised these questions uh, of trade-offs that, uh, that we face. So I really appreciate that, and that's going to remember, that's going to remain in my, uh, in my memory. So let me turn it over to Prem with the same question. Uh, what was, for you, Prem, the, uh, the most interesting or most important take-home message? Uh, 
Uh, thank you, Roberto. Uh, first, I want to commend uh, all of you for sticking it out and still being here. That takes a lot of uh, dedication and uh, a real genuine interest on the topic. For me, uh, kind of looking back five years ago, we were wondering whether there was a room for another uh, initiative on water that, that could receive attention globally. And I think the, when we brought together a lot of uh, friends, uh, new friends, experts from around the world, um, and there was a lot of concern because it, my bosses kept asking us is that, you know, what is the best place in water around the globe and, and why? And, and if we want to be the best, then um, uh, uh, do we need to focus? So I think the going back five years ago, and the, a lot of you were involved, and, and if you were, thank you very much, and the experts that came, and they, they, they uh, advised us that uh, if we just want to focus on water, that is, there are a lot of other places that are much better than us. But what makes sense for Nebraska uh, is the water and agriculture. And I think that looking back now, I think the, now this is the fifth year of the conference, that any doubts that we had five years ago, whether or not this is feasible, I am now convinced that we're here to stay. So that's the one message that, uh, that, uh, that I would like to pass on, that uh, uh, Doherty Water for Food Institute is real, and it is unique in its focus, and because several of the speakers actually mentioned that. Uh, the, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's real is because, not just because what we have in Nebraska, it's because of the relationship that we have already built and that we're building, and because of uh, so many uh, uh, colleagues have come from around the world to share their experiences with the, with the others. And, and I believe that hopefully, I know that we've learned a lot, but hopefully that you will go away with some of those solutions. The other message is that this uh, uh, challenge that we are dealing with is very complex. And there are, uh, there are multiple ways to solve this problem. So it is uh, uh, going to not just take a one particular discipline, it is going to take a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach multiple disciplines, and uh, not just uh, the academic community. So it's going to take a partnership between universities, with private sectors, uh, uh, research institutions uh, around the world. Uh, I think the technologies are going to be critical uh, to, to solve. So it's a, it's a complex problem. So definitely we need technologies. And I'll, I won't explain that anymore right now, but it will come up later on but uh, that in, in the interdisciplinary approach, it's just not technologies, but actually engaging the social and behavioral sciences uh, into solving these problems. And finally, that I think that the, uh, the panel that I was most excited about, uh, and I think that this really uh, brings in a, a lot of fresh ideas, is the Hamming 
the practitioners, the producers, that panel has added tremendously uh, to informing those of us who are at the universities and research institutions. So I think that's just something that I hope that we keep it, keep it up. Well, thanks again, uh, <clears throat> Prem. <clears throat> and everything you said really resonated uh, with me in terms of uh, we're real and we're here to stay. Um, the complexity of the challenge, that simply came up in so many different ways during the, uh, during the conference. Um, and a highlight for, for you, Prem, and for me personally, and for so many others, is, is the central role that producers play in this conference, uh, not only in the, in the special panel. Um, so thanks for those comments, Prem. And uh, now, Dilip. Same question. Uh, yes. What was for you the most uh, significant take-home message? What impressed you the most? Yes. It's the first time that I'm attending this conference. And before coming here, I thought it will be like another water conference. Uh, we have been talking so much about scarcity, future, climate change. But when I attended various sessions and panel discussions, I found is something different. The people are highly committed. The speakers and their topics, the selected, uh, you know, by organizers, very fascinating, very impressive. And also the audience, very committed. Uh, very good discussion had happened uh, during various panel discussions. And I feel that we realize the problem and the outcome, I could say, the message is the time for action. It is now the time for action. We have been talking so much. We have been doing so much research. But I think it's time to take this research to the field. And some of the experiments, which were field experiments, were really very impressive. And I think it is possible that the solutions are in our reach. But what I feel is that, uh, as Prem mentioned, the the problem is very complex and it is site specific. If you take the situations in Africa or India or Middle East or USA or for, for that matter in South America, the situations are totally different. They are very complex issues, local issues and I think we require an integration of various kinds of technologies and solutions which are available. And what I feel is that as the time is running out for solving water problems and population is increasing, we require to feed uh, so many people in years to come. And I think uh, whatever research is there, whatever knowledge is there, that has to go immediately for the action. And for that purpose, I think this conference has been very helpful for the participants to take home the various knowledge which has been put in here, uh, which could be applied at various places. Uh, I think it is very useful to have collaborations because this is the area of collaborations, the era of collaborations. And I think uh, solving any problem in isolation may not help in future. So the knowledge has to flow from the place where it has been created to the place where it is needed. And I think from that point of view, uh, this conference has been very, very useful. Uh, we are very fortunate that we are having some collaborations with the Institute like uh, Water for Food Institute, 
and I think such collaborations are definitely going to help. Just to give you for information that a country like India, where the yield gap is too large, the case is same for Africa. Uh, some of the presenters gave the data that there is tremendous yield gap between uh, you know, what is being there in many of the countries who have achieved agriculture development and the places like India and Africa. Uh, how to fill up this yield gap is very important. Uh, because with the technologies in uh, agriculturally developed countries, you may be able to increase uh, productivity by 10%, 15%. But existing yield gap itself in many of the countries is more than 100%. So I think the knowledge which is already available with the developed countries, I think must go to areas where there is a potential to grow. And for that purpose, I think uh, we have to take some actions. And uh, I, I'm sure that many of the participants will agree that there is a need to exploit the potentials which are available in the areas like Africa and India. Thank you. Very good. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Didi, for sharing those those thoughts. Um, I, <clears throat> I, uh, I felt when you said that this conference was something different, that certainly the way I felt when I was here last year for the first time, and again, this time it's a, it, it really is a, a different, both because of the, uh, you know, the, the focus, but also because of the mix. Um, and, uh, and as you said, these issues are so complex um, and so site-specific um, and so local in nature that you just simply have to have uh, the multifaceted presentations that we had today to be able to capture some of that uh, complexity. So last but not least, uh, Mace, what thoughts do you have on uh, what you found most significant during the conference? Well, um, first I, I, I want to applaud the Doherty Water for Food Institute for convening a conference that focuses so uh, intently on climate change. Uh, it's the leadership that I think that uh, we expect from the Institute and the greater university community to really address, uh, provide knowledge and analysis and understanding of, of really uh, this, this tremendous uh, global problem and, and take it to a, to a scale that resonates in Nebraska but also resonates at the global level. You know, I think too, too often still our policymakers are not uh, seeking that understanding. They're, they're sort of uh, taking the issue of climate change and kicking it down the road as instead of uh, really confronting it. And I think the, the solid focus of this conference on climate change, on resilience, on the, uh, the implications for the larger issue of how we're going to feed the world um, is, is a really welcome focus. And so I really appreciate, the, uh, really appreciate that focus. Um, because ultimately, inaction now is just going to cost us more down the road. So uh, I hope the uh, Institute and the University Community of Nebraska at large is going to continue to play a great leadership role in the state for that issue. I think the, one of the large take-home issues or uh, messages for me was the uncertainty we face is really very daunting. Um, not only do we face uncertainty in being able to understand what climate change means in terms of a, a changing climate, changing weather patterns, but we add to that the uncertainty of how our natural and our socioeconomic systems are going to respond, and that's a whole additional layer of uncertainty. Um, the idea, the resilience thinking that we, are, we may be on pathways towards tipping points, towards moving into whole new uh, domains or regimes for our, our systems, 
Uh, there's slow variables out there that are hard to measure, that are hard to get a handle on. Uh, it, uh, it, it presents a whole, whole new level of challenge. In a sense, that, that way of thinking provides a framework to start addressing those challenges, but the, um, we, heard a lot, uh, uh, we heard a lot of questions, I think, generated at this, at this conference uh, where we just have gaps in our knowledge of how, uh, how the, the levels of change that we're going to experience over the next several decades will, will enact themselves in our natural systems and our socioeconomic systems. You know, for the conservation community, this has caused a real paradigm shift, and I was interested to see that also the case uh, in the agricultural arena. Uh, Christo Fabricius told a story about small farmers in South Africa that for 350 years have been doing the right thing in terms of producing food, and yet their system is changing beneath them in a very dramatic way because of, of influences beyond their control. And Really, this parallels what we are experiencing in the conservation community. I think once upon a time, we thought it was sufficient to identify those places on the planet that have the greatest diversity of plants and animals and try to uh, ameliorate the threats to those places and, and, and preserve them, conserve them for future generations, and we'd be good. We'd be good for, uh, for several generations. And what we're finding now is instead, uh, despite our best efforts in protecting places, that they're changing right beneath our feet as well. That within the uh, single generation of a land manager, we have species coming and going in these systems. And it's caused us to reevaluate what are the qualities that we, um, we should be focusing on. And I think the, the emphasis in this conference on resilience as a framework for thinking about uh, maybe less focus on the specifics of, in the conservation analog would be the, the species in this area, but really more on the stage. Uh, thinking more about the dynamics, the relation, the, the, the flux of energy, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the relationships um, uh, between uh, different elements in an ecological community are probably uh, more worthy of our focus than the specific um, uh, species or actors on that stage. And I think that there's a, there's a parallel in agriculture that we have to ask ourselves where are our current agricultural practices taking us uh, on these trajectories that either are uh, enhancing resilience or, or not, taking us to a, to a new level. So I was interested to find that parallel with the conservation community, and I, it, gives me, uh, it gives me hope that uh, there's a, a confluence of interest there that can be uh, well-developed in not only um, understanding how to uh, produce more food, but how to also uh, preserve the natural systems that are so, uh, uh, so important to the preservation of both nature and, and people. Very good, uh, Mason. It was particularly gratifying for you, uh, to hear you talk about the, the parallels with the uh, concerns of the conservation community because one of the things we wanted to do, um, particularly uh, with, uh, with this conference, is engage with, with the conservation community, engage with those in, uh, concerned about issues of resilience and so on, um, and and I, I think we were largely successful in being able to begin that, uh, that engagement. Um, and thanks also for identifying the climate change uh, issue, the role that this conference has had, I think, in, in connecting these big issues of water and food uh, to larger questions of, of climate change. Um, Interesting about the uncertainty being daunting, and we need to connect that with what Dilip said about uh, the need for action. And so how can we take action at the time when, when we know that there are uncertainties? And that's, that's, uh, that's what makes decision-making in this area so, so complex. Now, let me um, just ask uh, one more uh, 
quick question uh, to each of the panelists, and then I want to turn it over for more of a dialogue with the uh, with the uh, with the overall participants. Um, so the second quick question is: um, Do you uh, what do you feel would be the innovation in research and technology or policy that has, in your view, the the most potential for increasing sustainable food security um, with with less water? So. Is there anything that came out of the conference that sort of struck you saying, wow, this is, this is really important? Um, so uh, we can go in any order on this. And, and uh, so I'm not sure if any of you would like to, would like to begin. Okay. I, Did it. Okay. Good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is, uh, as the conference theme suggests, water for food is very, very important. And water use efficiency, that is uh, more crop per drop, I think that is, uh, that is to be the future of, uh, you know, for food production. And from that point of view, I think uh, some innovations which I learned in the conference, uh, like uh, soil moisture mapping, uh, use of various kinds of uh, irrigation systems, uh, which are uh, you know, like variable rate irrigation, where we can save a lot of water. I think these technologies are very, very innovative and very useful. Then another very important innovation which I learned was of epigenetics. I didn't know before that uh, epigenetics is so important. And I think for developing varieties which are drought resistant or varieties which require less moisture, maybe heat tolerant, or maybe, uh, uh, you know, having pest and disease resistance, the enormous amount of research which could be exploited through epigenetics. I think this is another area which will be very, very useful and cost effective as against biotechnological research. Uh, then another uh, innovation which I find very important was uh, today's, uh, you know, cool tool tools, uh, instruments like image analysis and uh, drones which were shown for collecting data. I think uh, this technology is going to be very useful in future for collecting data which is very difficult and costly today. Uh, I think it's going to make a lot of difference in future. Uh, so these innovations, I think these are very important. But as I said, the innovations have to be cost effective, site specific, and how, how we can exploit them for various locations. I think these are uh, very important things which have to be taken out. Thanks Thank uh, very much, Tideep. And you know, the interesting thing is that your examples, first set of examples you gave are <coughs> fall into what, more in the irrigation engineering technology. The second is the agricultural technology. And the third was in the information technology. And that's one of the things, again, that I found interesting about this conference. You can just look at these questions of innovation um, from these variety of perspectives. And great to hear you say those, uh, those take-home uh, examples. Anyone else would like to comment on this? I would like to add. I've got Prem. I just kind of want to reinforce there that really the, generally we look at being a life scientist, got to promote genetics. And, and I think that certainly the biotechnology and potential, and I think Professor Sally McKenzie did a great job. 
So that is clearly, we cannot ignore that. That's got to be part of the solution. But the other part is, is the decision support tools. I think that this is an area that we have not uh, uh, put much emphasis on. There was a, there's a really good example that was uh, uh, shown by uh, Dean Chuck Hibbard about the water optimizer. That, again, started many years ago, and I'm very proud of my faculty colleagues for developing that. We need more tools like that so the producers and farmers can, can make decisions on, yes, we can save water, but yet their take-home pay will still not be the impacted. I think the, today's talks about generating new information was great. I think the uh, underground sensor technology to, to get the data on how, the moistures and others, uh, but then taking uh, these data that is already available and how can we package it such and make it available to pr uh, practitioners or producers so they can use it and based on that they can save, save water. So I think it presents a tremendous, very, very exciting opportunities, but it's got to be done in a collaborative way. Thanks, Prem. Uh, I fully endorse what you said about, uh, you know, how do we develop tools uh, that allow us to make better decisions, uh, allow policymakers base, uh, <coughs> make better decisions based on, uh, on solid research evidence. Uh, Sandy or Mace? Mace? Uh, yeah, I, um, I, I was very impressed as well. I'm, I don't have an agronomy background or agricultural background. I was very impressed with the first day's talks about the epigenetics, about uh, you know, the, the efforts going into productivity gains in seeds. But to, take, to maybe take the, uh, go to the opposite uh, side of the spectrum, because we started the conference talking about how important smallholders were around the globe in food production. And I was struck at some of the relatively low-tech, simple things that can be done, the, the, the talk on, for example, um, residue management and saving moisture in the soil, how dramatic that can be uh, in Nebraska and presumably elsewhere around the world in, in managing that soil health, which one of the speakers, Peter Hicks, said, you know, it all, resilience in our smallholder systems start with soil health. And uh, the, the high-tech is very, um, is amazing, but I think we also need to focus at, at the low-tech arena and what simple things can be done. And the other emerging message for me in terms of the, the low-tech end was diversity, that a diversity in an operation can provide that resilience that uh, as we enter a, a more variable climate uh, can provide not only that resilience in, in food production, but that resilience in in the socially, social economic foundation for those smallholder operations. So I, that, for me, was an eye-opener. Yeah, and one of the things that struck me as well is that uh, in this conference there's both the, the, the high-tech and the low-tech, as you say, but in both cases the need for good science uh, is there. It's not just the high-tech that needs the good science. The low-tech uh, needs equally good science to be able to come up with the right... Uh, with the right uh, prescriptions, as it were. Sandy, anything to add to this? I also have a specific question to you uh, afterwards, um, if you want to, uh, or you could jump into that other question first, but let me give you an opportunity first to comment on, on, on any innovations that struck you. Well, I, I do have a couple of observations, and I'm kind of taking in a different direction. Maybe I'm leading to your next question or not. I don't know, but um, one, one thing that strikes me um, in each of the last 
conferences that we've had here with the um, Water for Food Institute and water conferences and water science and law conferences that we've had in the past is that our science and technology have um, vastly outpaced the legal treatment of the water resources. And of course, that's the area um, of my expertise. And I think we've all learned in the last few days, and I think we probably all inherently knew, that ignoring the science that ought to drive our policy decisions is, is dangerous. Uh, but the law is almost always one to 10 to 100 steps behind. Um, I'll give you one example out of Texas, which is struggling mightily right now with drought and high temperatures, uh, losing their cotton crops, um, lowering their aquifers. Uh, the law that's in place with respect to groundwater management in Texas is a law that dates all the way back to the mid-1800s, and it hasn't changed a whole lot since the mid-1800s, despite the advances in technology and science. Uh, and I'll just tell you a little story. In 1904, in a case called the Houston and Texas Railway Company versus East, Mr. East sued the railroad because it had drilled a large well to, suppl to supply its locomotives, and it caused Mr. East's well, which he had been using for some years for domestic purposes, uh, to go completely dry. Mr. East sued, and guess what? He lost. The Texas court ruled that landowners may capture as much groundwater as they desire without liability to surrounding landowners who might claim that pumping has depleted their own wells. Poor Mr. East. Uh, what possible rationale could the Texas court have had? Uh, the existence and movements of groundwater, says the court, are so secret, occult, and concealed that an attempt to administer any set of legal rules in respect to them would lead us to hopeless uncertainty and be practically impossible. As a result, lawmakers and courts declined at the time to make any laws regarding the use of groundwater in Texas. Again, poor Mr. East. Today, our hydrogeologists don't know everything, but, but they sure do know that surface and groundwater are, in many if not most areas, interconnected and inseparable. But for over a century, this sort of separation myth has been a major impediment to the development of an integrated body of water law. Uh, in law, at least, we are still living with the mistaken idea that groundwater and surface water are separate resources, and we've got divergent regulatory schemes developed for the two. There's been some progress uh, in Texas. There are now 16 groundwater management areas that have submitted a plan for how much groundwater they anticipate will be available to each area for the next 15 years, and standards called desired future conditions. Uh, there is progress in Nebraska, where we've got the state, Department of Natural Resources Managing Surface Waters, with the 30-some uh, local natural resource districts managing groundwaters. But together, under landmark legislation out of 2004 by the Nebraska Unicameral, the two are coming together in at least fully appropriated basins and forming integrated water management plans that rely very heavily on science and technology and conservation principles. I'd like to hear more about that in some of our upcoming conferences because I think, as I talk to scientists, one of the first things they say is, how much do you people actually talk to the scientists? Do your students ever pay any attention to hydrologists and geologists and engineers and ecologists and biologists? And my answer is, 
only if I force them to. And I think we need to do better. Sandy, I think we've got the topic uh, for a future conference uh, well identified. I, I would, uh, hearing you say that, I just feel that there's a, a wonderful opportunity to be able to explore some of those issues. Um, and, uh, um, you know, sometimes we begin exploring them uh, in a caucus fashion, as we will today, on these issues of water, food, and health. And, and I think you've identified a subject that would be really really exciting um, and a way to connect. Um, so thanks for that. Um, let me, let me um, pose a question that, was, um, that I think might be good for uh, discussion uh, both by the panel but the, the, the group at large. And it was triggered by an email um, that I received uh, someone objecting a little bit to the uh, the, the title and subtitle of this, of this conference. Um, and um, I think, in fact, it's, it's rather, it's not a question of semantics, it's more a substantive question. Um, and it has to do with the fact that the main subject, or one of the main subjects of the conference was how can we increase the capacity of our food and water and natural ecosystems to adapt to a changing climate. Um, and the, uh, the writer of the email um, posed the question, well, shouldn't we be focusing as part of, of adaptation on how to decrease the demands on our systems, how to decrease the demands on our natural systems as a way of adaptation? Um, and that's the question I wonder whether you, Sandy, and others around the table might have some, some comments. Um, and then that we could segue into a, into a discussion with, uh, with the participants as a whole. I don't know, Sandy, you've had anything, anything to say on that? Or Mace, I know this is uh, perhaps an issue close to you. Um, sure, well, I'll just start with a really short answer. Um, we, by law, um, and my expertise is more in federal law for the most part, have adopted a number of requirements to uh, decrease demand. One of the first and foremost, and also one of the environmental laws that people love most to hate, is called the Endangered Species Act. But it only kicks in when things get so bad that critically imperiled species, and I was talking with some folks last night about the Platte River, the pallid sturgeon, the whooping crane, the least interior tern. When those species are threatened to the brink of extinction, then federal protections come in and demand screeches if not to a halt, but to a substantially diminished state not because people have chosen to come together and collaborate, but because the system has gotten so out of whack that species that have been deemed um, eligible for federal protection have caused some very severe constraints on the system. Um, that's probably not the best answer in terms of finding ways to decrease our demand, but it certainly is one, if we uh, refuse to collaborate, refuse to pay attention to the science, the ecology, uh, the geology, the geomorphology, all of those ologies, and if we fail to come together as a community to manage a scarce resource and to adapt in doing so, then there are constraints on demand. And they're usually constraints by law that nobody really wants to see. Great uh, reaction to that, uh, Sandy, thanks. And I, Mesa, I don't know if you have any comments on this, and I, let me ask uh, afterwards from the public. 
Yeah, I, I completely concur. I think a, a little uh, constraint on the demand, like through regulation, can be a great uh, impetus for innovation. And, um, and I think we've seen that. Uh, I think if everyone's happy with the status quo, you don't necessarily get some of those breakthrough innovations that not only can alleviate a situation here in Nebraska, but could alleviate it uh, with, you know, the solution could apply elsewhere. You know, I'm, I, you know, and, and clearly, population growth as, as a global driver is 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 the premise for for why this is uh, even an important issue. But I, you know, you turn the. Um, I wonder if you turn it on its head in respect to demand. I, I I've been questioning if we are if we accurately know what the demand is. And uh, you know, one of the issues with with global food production is. Um, how much, how much food do we actually need to produce and where do we need those gains around the globe from a macro picture? Um, in the climate arena, when it became clear that our current trajectory of carbon uh, uh, growth uh, is, uh, you know, is sort of like this and our, where we need to be is a flatter trajectory, uh, an exercise was created to sort of say, okay, let's, t let's take this huge problem and break it into more manageable components and maybe come up with multiple solutions to create, to solve a, a wedge of this overall problem we have to solve. And I wonder if a similar process could be applied to uh, the, the global food needs in a way that more accurately uh, uh, identifies the demands uh, in, in different geographies through different techniques. And that may be another way of, of answering that question about uh, does the demand side make a difference? Do we really have a, a clear handle on uh, what the demand is in different geographies and how then what's, what the strategies might be to address that demand? So I, I, I was just taking that parallel from the climate change arena and how to solve that problem. I don't know if that's been done in the agricultural arena from a global scale, how to take this large problem and chunk it into more manageable wedges, but that might be a way to clarify what the demand actually is on a, on a more uh, geographically specific level with clearer strategies in those geographies. Very good. Well, let me um, thank you, Mace, for that and, and uh, raise uh, the opportunity to everybody in the room to, to comment. I do think that this question is important. Um, we need to look at, in a sense, the consumption side as well as the production side. It's the consumption is dealing with the, with the consumption side is, in the end, the best way to deal with these uh, reducing pressures on our, on our natural systems. And I I think that, that uh, the whole field of energy conservation is one part of it. The whole question of water conservation is part of that. Um, and on the food side, I think the concern about food waste is, is part of that, uh, of that whole equation. And we, we need to look at that context as well. So let me uh, invite uh, reactions to that or, um, or more general observations uh, or suggestions uh, or proposals um, for consideration. And we have, as in the past, we have at least two mics. I can see one here on the right and one on the left. Um, so let's see who would like to come up first. There's one person coming up on, uh, on my right. And, and please, um, if you could just simply identify yourself uh, before uh, speaking. David Iaquinta. I'm at Nebraska Wesleyan University. Uh, the conference is... Um, focusing um, not really on sustainability, but on resilience. And sustainability would suggest, you know, can we keep doing what we're doing? And part of your responses are suggesting maybe we should be looking at what we're doing in terms of asking what macro consumption or production is. I'm always surprised, uh, not just at this conference, but 
any time that I'm dealing with agricultural issues, that it's almost heresy to talk about urban agriculture. And when I look at the world and what people do to survive and ask about human systems resilience, urban agriculture has historically and in the present been a significant component of that. Most people only see it as just gardening. The reality is that people throughout the world survive and generate incomes in agricultural production in and immediately around cities. And it is clearly a human resilience factor, and it doesn't go away. And it's especially pronounced for poorer populations in the world, disenfranchised populations. And it's particularly related to children's nutrition and women's empowerment. There are tremendous opportunities in the arena, but we don't really want to galvanize ourselves to think about it much because it doesn't seem scalable in the same way that commodity production does. The other kind of resilience that we've built into and bought into is the resilience of growing more corn and then feeding it to cattle. And we've created a consumption lifestyle which may be sustainable, but not in the face of large parts of the world wanting that same lifestyle. Is sustainability really a good approach? If we're really going to talk about resilience, can we ignore these kinds of sectors in thinking about resilience, urban agriculture, and changing consumption habits? Because they really do reflect real changes behaviorally and culturally. Um, in urban agriculture, uh, the issue of water shows up in multiple ways. Pick up the newspaper in Lincoln, and you will see that there are new regulations for water use that are being proposed in the city. The presumption is that if people aren't drinking it, cooking with it, bathing with it, or washing dishes, that they're watering their lawns. But the fact is, lots of people are watering their gardens. Is that, is that just a superfluous use of, of it? Is it a wise use when, in fact, lots of gray water goes back through the system, is treated, goes into the rivers, and then is withdrawn again as drinking water but used for gardens? We could approach the problem of water for food in a different way. These initiatives exist in some areas, but not as a wholesale process. In poorer countries, the water availability for urban agriculture falls into categories of non-availability because of occupations by people who don't have tenure rights. And it shows up uh, as people having to purchase their bottled water to drink. And where then do they get the water for food that they might want to grow on property or access? So I just put a plea out there that as we think about commodity production, as we think about peri-urban hothouse production as sectors, that we start to think about this other sector of food production called urban agriculture in all of its manifestations as an important sectoral contribution to resilience in the world system. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, David. And, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that others might want to uh, react to that. Um, and while I'm waiting for people uh, to come up, um, let me just say that on on my side, this is uh, an issue that I think really needs to be um, on the table. I think part of the reason why it's not is that 
uh, from a production point of view, uh, it is so uh, less significant than uh, than uh, than than regular agriculture. Uh, but when you think of it from a resilience uh, point of view, when you think of it from a sustainability and livelihoods point of view, it takes on a very different dimension. Um, and just as a as a parenthetical comment, when I was at UNDP, we brought out a book on urban agriculture, which turned out to be one of the best sellers uh, at UNDP. It, had, it really resonated with a number of people who wanted to look at it from a livelihood um, and from a larger sort of sustainability point of view rather than from a production uh, context. So, uh, next uh, question or Hi, comment. My, name, my name's Jim Snyder. Um, I live in Nebraska. Uh, I, I'm probably ab about to bring up something that might be considered sacrilege in a state that grows so much corn. Uh, but it's interesting to me, the only thing I heard about ethanol in the entire conference was uh, that it makes good feed in a feedlot, uh, the, the byproducts do. I guess my, my question or my, my comment on the demand side is that, um, most of the science that I've read around ethanol says that it doesn't make any sense at all to make a minor amount of fuel by processing corn. So why, why then do we continue to do it? Uh, and is it, as I believe, nothing more than a, um, a, a glorified welfare for farmers? So. Th those are my comments. I think, uh, I think ethanol has a place for discussion in this conference. Jim, thanks uh, very much. Um, and it was provocative, and I'm sure that others would like to uh, address that or raise other issues. Um, and I have someone else step stepping up to the plate there. Hi, my name's Chad Smith. I'm with the Platte River Recovery Implementation Program. And since my friend Sandy Zelmer brought it up, I'm going to ask roughly the same question I asked of the resilience panel yesterday and hopefully get some input from this esteemed panel. And that is really advice or your thoughts or insight on how you communicate science to people, whether they're decision makers or in the case of this conference and a lot of folks in the room, someone like producers who are dealing with these things on the ground. Uh, I don't know if Sandy and I disagree on this or not, but I, I, I subscribe to the notion that science is one piece of decision making. You have to give good science, but you also have to realize that people come to the table with political baggage and constituencies and a whole host of things, and this is true for judges too, I really believe, that we, we do ourselves a disservice as folks that work in the science realm thinking that science has the answer because to me it makes us come across as a room full of mystics that can solve a problem that there's more to it than that so i'm constantly on this mission to learn from people how they talk about their field of expertise with, with regular people in my case it's decision makers i i spend really all my time on the plat as kind of the science manager for the program trying to figure out how am i going to tell what's going on here to the people that are making decisions so they can arm themselves with good information and make decisions that may be grounded in that science but that also have other things. So 
I just am always interested in hearing from folks like you what you think of that and how either in your daily work or in the people you run into, how do you talk to people in a way with very complex information that uh, becomes then useful to the people you're talking to? Well, I think, Sandy, that uh, was a question for you. Um, and let me also invite other panelists, since we probably have to close soon, if they would like to react to any of the previous uh, questions. But Sandy, I think you're on first. Well, thanks a lot, Chad, for putting me on the spot. Really, really appreciate you there. No, you're right. And I think Chad's point, um, we could discuss this and take it in any number of different directions, and it could lead to a whole other day of discussion at the very least, and probably should. But one thing that occurs to me is that the scientists, um, although some of the science of groundwater management may seem occult and mystic to those of us who are not scientists, the scientists can only get us so far, even if they're willing to engage and can and uh, will explain their research, their findings, their conclusions to the decision makers. At the end of the day, the choices, the trade-offs, turn on societal values and priorities. And that's not a scientific question. And I think people sometimes tend to forget that. And they either glorify the scientists or they blame the scientists, when really the science, you would hope, although it may be evolving, we're learning um, more all the time, it is what it is. And the decision makers then have to have guidance from their communities in terms of what do we do with that science? What are our priorities? What kinds of trade-offs are we as a community, as a society, willing to make? Thanks, Sandy. And let me um, maybe just uh, go down this way with the panel and ask Prem, any reactions to the question, the last one, or the question about uh, comment on, on ethanol or urban agriculture? No, I, I wouldn't want to comment on that. I think it's, uh, but I, I do want to really uh, address the science-based policy. I think the, uh, there's a definitely uh, a place for scientists to generate information and provide that information to those who make uh, policy and decisions so they can, they can make the right decisions. Uh, it may not be the right uh, case in this particular case. I think I mentioned water optimizer. What really, uh, water optimizer provides a tool that you can show that you can save water and actually will save uh, money for, for the producers. And, and uh, the way that came about was at the time, Congressman Tom Osborne, the former coach, the legendary coach of football and national championships, he came to us and he challenged our, our colleagues and scientists and said, I need this tool right now. They said, well, you know, it's going to take uh, two or three years to develop it. They said, no, I need the tool right now. So my colleagues, uh, uh, they rose to the challenge and they developed the, the tools. So I think that the, actually the, the, some of the tools that we've been talking about this morning, decision support tools, then that can generate information. Everybody has it. And then it's up to the policymakers to see how can we best use this to, to, to accomplish our goals. Thanks very much, uh, Prem. And uh, Deep, any closing thoughts? Yes, actually. Uh a lot of information which is generated never reaches to the user. 
and there are two blocks. One is of course uh, right policy decisions in right time and another block is how this information translate into usable tools by the stakeholders. I think these two things are very important and from that point of view creating awareness among policymaker itself is a very important task which scientists have to do. I think and for that purposes a lot of interaction uh, has to happen between policymakers and uh, the uh, scientific community. I think this is very important. Uh, I, I don't see why we should not have some uh, uh, policymakers or politicians uh, being invited to such kind of conferences so that at least they will understand uh, the need of these technologies and tools which could be useful for the common people. I think this is very important. And uh, the information, information which is generated through by the scientific community must get translated into a tool which is usable by the stakeholders. And for that purpose, I think the uh, role of extension workers is very, very important. Thanks very much, uh, Didip. And uh, Mace? Uh, yeah, just to respond to, uh, I believe it was David. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I can't speak to the, com the contribution from, from urban uh, agriculture to the overall issues, but I think a very similar argument can be posed for energy production as well. And I think there's some interesting ways in which, you know, energy production on one's own property could potentially contribute over a large scale to, uh, to solving our energy issues, which are, which are greatly in parallel with our agricultural issues. And I was also struck by Doug Beard's talk where uh, how much inland waterway, in, inland water aquatic systems provide food. Uh, it's another way to think of water, water for food. Um, that there's a lot of, there are, there's a lot of food around us, uh, not just in our backyard gardens, but also in our inland waterway systems. So just, just two thoughts there. Chad, I don't know if your question was with respect to policymakers specifically or, or, um, or, or general audiences. I'm a scientist by training. I love to get into the details talking about science, and yet I talk all the time to a general audience trying to convince them of the importance of conservation. So stepping away from just trying to influence policymakers, just trying to influence people, trying to get people in this day and age, their attention is being pulled in so many different directions with uh, short attention spans. How do you get them to uh, respond to important points that, that have their roots in science? And I, I sort of go back to, you know, maybe the same rules of good journalism. You know, you, don't, you, you, you start with a, the most important point uh, in, a, in a general way and, and only get to the detail as people are hungry for that detail. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's really the first step, I think, in being an effective communicator is not to be talking at all. It's to be listening, because you need to reach people where they are. And I think until you understand how someone is, is looking at the issue that you want to talk to them about, you can't know how to connect that to the point you're trying to make. So I, I, you know, I think there's some basic first principles in communication that start with listening that can be very uh, effective in, 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 in getting people. Because people are wary these days of, of argument. And they're wary of being convinced of something. You have to reach them where they are and find an, find an interest. And so I find that. Although it's been hard for me uh, as a scientist to sort of overcome all the detail. You know, isn't the detail compelling? Detail's not compelling. You know, people want, want the main point, and they'll start there, and if they're interested, they'll get the detail. So it, it kind of uh, belies the integrity of, of, of scientists that you have to, you, you can't give them all the detail up front, but, it, uh, but it, it pays in the end, I think, in terms of, 
of getting people to understand your point. Thank you. Yes. I have a, uh, an observation maybe tying two of those um, points together that Mace just addressed, communicating science and the urban agriculture issue. There's a fabulous documentary that's coming out of Omaha called Growing Cities, and it's basically a road trip saga. So it's sort of, you know, Jack Kerouac on the road. But it's a group of young people, college graduates, going around in an old vehicle to about half a dozen different cities across the United States, Chicago, Austin, Texas, Brooklyn, New York, etc. But home, their home is in Omaha, looking at how city dwellers, impoverished to very well off, all sorts of different kinds of city dwellers, are growing their own food in the urban setting. And it's really a great story, and it, to go back to the communication issue, it's the human interest story, and it's a number of different human interest stories. And a lot of the topic is, well, how'd you do that? That's really cool. Oh, you're growing earthworms in your basement so that you can make compost for the plants that you're growing in your window in an apartment complex in Brooklyn? How do you do that? And okay, so just in the interest of full disclosure, my niece, Chelsea Taxman, is featured in this documentary. And she's got a truck farm, literally a farm in the bed of her old pickup truck. And she goes around to elementary schools teaching kids how to grow things that they can eat in very small spaces in a sustainable way. And I think we reach people, at least people of a certain age, maybe younger than I, um, through stories, everybody loves stories, but also through video, media, documentaries, YouTube, for heaven's sakes. But it's really effective. Well, I'm really happy that this, uh, the panel uh, got onto these issues of, of science and policy and communication and how do we engage people in these issues. So it was, uh, thanks for those questions that sparked uh, this, uh, this great round of comments, which in the end are at the heart of what the Doughty Water Food Institute is all about, because it's about science, it's about policy, but it's also about communication. Um, and I did see Antonio in the, in the corner there. I was so focused on the right-hand side that I didn't see him on the, on the, on the left-hand side. So I'm going to ask uh, Antonio to, um, to uh, uh, comment, and then I will try to wrap up. Antonio. Uh, yes, uh, this is more of a suggestion, I think, for the future conferences. Uh, last year in Brazil, they held a 20-plus uh, conference regarding the environment and, and everything. And uh, with such a powerful tool, what I think the Water for Food is, uh, maybe we could get in future conferences some official representative to give us a, a feedback and a follow-up and all the promises that were made by all the country leaders. And, if, if because we're doing our job, and I was just maybe, see if we could get a feedback from the leaders. This, thank you. Th thank you very much. And and Antonio, we you know uh, we talked about that in uh, uh, just before this closing session, um, and uh, it struck me <clears throat> that this is a really important suggestion in the context uh, of two things. One is the the, the desire to connect uh, what happens in this room with, with policy makers at both national and international levels. And the second is that the theme of Rio plus 20 was, was the future we want. Um, and I think that captures so well what everybody in this room is, uh, what brings us together. How can we create a future 
that really responds to, uh, to our desires to be able to address uh, the need for everybody around the world to have uh, the food for a safe and healthy life, but to do that within the constraints of our natural resource system. So a great suggestion um, and a great way to bring this, uh, this together. Um, it's been a wonderful two and a half days. I think that uh, um, most people probably feel the way that I do, that it was uh, a great learning experience. Uh, there is, everybody that I've talked to has learned something new, um, and that's what you really want uh, in a conference. You want an opportunity <clears throat> to, <clears throat> to get together with others, but you also want to learn new things. Um, and I think all of us have, have been blown away by the presentations and uh, on managing drought, on the frontiers of science, on research and inaction, on the complexities of livelihoods, uh, of, of livestock uh, and water questions and new technologies, uh, and this overall context of resilience and adaptation in the face of climate change. It's really been uh, so stimulating uh, in so many ways, and I'm, I'm really glad by the, the positive feedback that, uh, that we've received, not only in the conference, but on the work of the Institute. Um, that, uh, that, that we're engaged in here. Um, my sense, uh, and I think, uh, Prem, you articulated this, uh, it's not only the, uh, the Institute, but the, these annual Water for Food conferences have really found a niche. Uh, this focus on water and food uh, makes it different from virtually any other uh, international conference, either on water or on agriculture. It's that interface between the two uh, that makes this conference so unique. And also, I think the formula that, uh, that this conference has, has, uh, has worked out um, in terms of a good combination of really stellar speakers um, on, on interesting topics uh, and providing the time really to get into these issues in depth has been really important. Going forward, we've uh, thought that um, it might be good to mix the locations. We've had five conferences here in Lincoln. Uh, our plan is to have the 2014 conference uh, in Seattle, uh, hosted by the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We don't yet have a date, um, but we hope to be announcing that date before the end of, of June. So stay tuned uh, to our website, stay tuned to all of us uh, as to the, uh, the next uh, conference, and I can only assure you that it will be as exciting and as interesting and as stimulating uh, as this conference. Uh, now, um, clearly, uh, in a conference of this sort, uh, there's a huge number of people that one has to uh, thank, um, and I, um, I'm not going to do a... Uh, I'm sure that I'm going to miss out uh, on important people to thank, um, but... I'd like to start by thanking, the, uh, of course, the, the conference sponsors, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Monsanto as the major conference sponsors, our supporting uh, and contributing sponsors, DuPont, uh, Pioneer, Syngenta, Dow AgroSciences, Lycor, and the Nebraska Corn Board. Um, the, uh, that's in terms of the financial support, but there are many others that have provided uh, intellectual uh, support and advisors in so many important ways. And, and the faculty committee that uh, met in December and January of this year really laid the foundations for uh, what 
was the program of the last two and a half days, and I really appreciate the time and the effort and the insights uh, of that committee. Um, I do think uh, it is important to recognize at the same time the role that, that our board um, and our working group um, of the senior administrators of this university, it's their commitment, their uh, understanding, their uh, engagement, um, and their support both during the conference and in preparation that is invaluable to us. And so uh, our thanks go to, to President Milligan, to Mons Bai, to Jeff Rakes on the board, and to Harvey Perman and Ronnie Green and Prem Paul and Tom Farrell um, and Bob Meany as, uh, as important uh, supporters through the working group of the Institute. Um, Perhaps the, uh, the most uh, thanks that I have to give um, is for those, this huge team of people that were involved in the organizing uh, of this conference. So the organizing team was led by my colleague, uh, Monica Norby, uh, Associate Director. Monica, if you would please stand up so that we can uh, give you a special... A very special thank you uh, to Monica, um, and it's been a big team uh, that Monica has worked with. Um, and let me just uh, mention a few, and I'll, I'll ask you also to stand up. Um, and those that I don't mention but were involved, please stand up too. Uh, Anne Bleed, uh, Rachel Herpel, uh, Gillian Klukas, uh, Jesse Starida, uh, Judy Stouch, uh, the communications team, including Dan Moser and Melissa Lee and Andrea Gebhardt and Brett Hampton and Craig uh, Chandler, Greg Chandler, um, and of course the Underwood events team led by Mike Underwood and Amy Pierce. Let me thank you, one and all, um, and those of you who aren't here as well. Now, last but not least, uh, uh, a conference like this uh, doesn't work unless we have really outstanding uh, panelists like we had today, uh, presenters, moderators, um, and a wonderfully engaged uh, group of people in every single event uh, of the conference. So let me thank uh, all those who played formal roles at the, uh, at the front of the hall, as it were, but also perhaps as importantly, those who played important roles in the audience in engaging with us all in, in the dialogue that we've had. So thank you one and all, and uh, let me formally bring this to a close, and uh, hope the glass doesn't break, and look forward to seeing you next year.